Welcome to another episode of The Caption Life, a podcast about how comics and pop culture impact life and society and vice versa. Coming to you from deep in the heart of Texas, I'm Kevin. And from Indiana, I'm Sean. Before we get started with this episode, please hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast platform you're listening to us on. And follow us on social media under the username at Caption Life. You can also find out more information and past episodes at thecaptionlife.com. Hey, you know, at the, the Caption Life podcast, we love to talk about comics. Uh, and there are a lot of great comic book characters out there. Mm-hmm. Um, we seem to talk a lot about Batman. <laughs> and we are, uh, it's a deep well. I mean, he's been around for 80 plus years. I mean, come on. Uh, and we we are going to get to go back to that well tonight. We had the the great pleasure of getting to talk to Michael Uslan. Uh, I mean, I'm butchering that. Um, <laughs> Michael Uslan last episode, and this week we are going to stay in the realm of of his baby, which was the 1989 Batman film. Uh, and we're going to uh, get to talk to somebody who's currently working on the DC comic of the same name. Yeah. So currently, there is a comic series by DC Comics called Batman '89. And it was inspired by the 1989 Tim Burton film, Batman. And here's the official description of the series by DC Comics. Step back into the Gotham of Tim Burton's seminal classic Batman movies. Batman 89 brings in screenwriter Sam Hamm, who wrote Batman and Batman Returns, and artist Joe Quinones, Dal H for Hero, to pull on a number of threads left dangling by the prolific director. Gotham becomes torn in two as citizens dressed as Batman and the Joker duke it out on the streets, And as District Attorney Harvey Dent tries to keep the city together, he targets the one problem tearing it apart, Batman. And he'll get Bruce Wayne's help in taking down the Dark Knight. All right, this has been a a great run so far, and we're excited to have the artist of the series on the show, Joe Quinones. He's an American comic book artist and illustrator known for his expressive faces and fluid line work. Joe has also worked on several books spanning over the last several years, including Spider-Man, Howard the Duck, Dial H for Hero, and most recently, Batman 89. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thank you. Have a beer. <laughs> ready, always ready to talk more Batman. <laughs> yes. I got my pen. I'm, I'm ready for it. I know. I, you know, and, and I've seen uh, some of your Instagram posts. I love, first of all, I love all your drawings in Batman 89, but I love all the memorabilia that you have of Batman, because I, I saw that you had the Batman um, logo there, and you also have, like I think, the, the Hell Here that's from the comic as well, too. That's uh, from Catwoman's apartment, if I remember correctly. Is that right? I, I wish I did. I have that in, in the <laughs> bar, I guess. I don't have the actual, like, neon sign. Okay. No. I, I saw that they make that, but... Yeah, yeah. I think I saw, like, a, as, a, as a button or something like that, so... It's a uh, step too far for me to have the giant neon. <laughs> it's a little too bright. <laughs> I have a really good friend named Alex Spivey. Uh, shout out to my boy Alex who I've taught with for a number of years. And he has a box of the Batman 89 cereal, um, oh, like unopened in his, in his classroom. <laughs> and every time I go in there, I'm so tempted to like <laughs> open it up and try it. And I know it would ruin the value of it and it'd probably also kill me, but it's just so tempting. It's like pristine, like the, like the, the, in, in the, the, the logo is still so bright and shiny. It just, it calls to me. You oh, yeah. open it and the marshmallow just turns to dust and blows away. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. With all the stuff that they put in there, though, it's probably still pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) So, Joe, thanks for coming on the show. So one of the things that we always ask our guests that come on is your comic book origin story. So we want to ask you, what is your origin story? Was there someone or something that introduced you to comics? And what was it that made you a comic book fan? Um, Well, I I, uh, initially, I would say, like, 
the Superman, the 78 Superman movie. So uh, I was born in the early 80s and um, my dad kind of held my hand through a lot of like the nerd media that I would uh, come to become a huge fan of. Um, and he showed me the original Christopher Reed movie and I, I loved it. I used to watch it. I still watch it over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, but that kind of led me to procure my first comics. Um, and uh, I've said it before. I should have looked it up again, but it's, um, oh, I have it written down somewhere. But it's like, it was like an oversized collection of an old Neil Adams man bat story. Mm-hmm. And they collected and condensed into like, uh, like an annual and it, it came with like um, an audio tape that you could play along with it while you're reading it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they sold it at department stores or something. It was just like to, you know, get more kids into superheroes. Um, but I remember I had that and I just like would pour over it again and again and, and ran it ragged. And, um, and I had also um, the first appearance of uh, Jason Todd, the uh, stealing the wheels off the Batmobile. Mm. Uh, and I, I just remember like, just, I, those are always nearby in my, in my bedroom growing up and I would kind of go over them again and again. And that was sort of, that was my main entryway into Batman. And then around that time, like mid eighties or so, I remember they started re- rerunning um, the 66 Adam West series, mm. which I loved also. I was just anything, anything superhero. I was just like super into it. Um, but obviously it's like a way different tone, even from those comics, like it's much more slapstick and, and, you know, bright and sunny. Um, but I was super into it and, and, uh, but nothing kind of, kind of like bowled me over so much as the 89 Batman, uh, Tim Burton film, which I remember I went to go see, I was, uh, my mom took me there. We went to go see him at a, at a drive-in in upstate New York. And uh, it just like completely blew me away. I was utterly obsessed with the character afterward and then became a voracious comic reader afterward. And, and uh, I think it, in, a, in a real way kind of set me down a path of uh, kind of being obsessed in, with, uh, with comic books and eventually drawing them. <laughs> That's awesome. In addition to Batman 89, your career, Joe, has um, as an artist has, across the comics industry, you've worked on for other Batman comics, Harley Quinn for DC, America Chavez, uh, Spider-Man, Captain Marvel for Marvel, and even Ghostbusters for IDW. In looking at your career so far, what do you think has been the biggest highlight for you? Um, I mean, it, it's it's huge that I'm getting to work on this book because it's like it was so seminal to to uh, my journey as a creative person Um, and to have, you know, it feels like coming full circle for me of like this thing that sort of inspired me and set me on this path of of becoming a comic book artist. And now I'm um, kind of back, you know, diving back into that very same uh, mythos with the writer who wrote the movie. It's kind of like, I have to pinch myself to remind, remember, you know, how cool that is. Um, but, uh, beyond that, I, uh, my, my first big foray in, in comics was, um, I had done a couple like small stories and covers, but, uh, Mark Shirell, who was the then art director, um, at DC, uh, he, well, I, he, he didn't necessarily ask me, I kind of finagled my way onto a project that he was working on, on called, uh, Wednesday comics, mm-hmm. which do you guys remember that? Um, it was a, um, 
it was a, a serial um, anthology book that DC put out in 2009, I think. And um, the idea was that it would kind of harken back to like the old Sunday comics that, that people would read growing up. So um, it would come on, on a big folded piece of newsprint. So it, it would, you know, it would be on the shelf, the size of a basic, basically a, a normal issue of comics, but then you would unfold it and unfold it again. And it would be like 18 by 24. And, uh, and uh, each, uh, there were like several collaborators. So like several teams who worked on different uh, stories in the book and it ran for 12 issues, each issue, uh, each team got one page in each issue and they would run on cliffhangers. And so you'd have to come back the next week and see what happens. Um, but, uh, so I worked, I got to work on that with Kirk Busiek and, uh, on a Green Lantern story, which, um, when I got back into comics, uh, in my college years, mm -hmm. uh, part of what got me back into that was, was reading Marvels and then, um, uh, Astro City. And I was like, again, like a, uh, kind of a humbling thing to be able to get paired up with like such a giant in the industry. And he was also really great to work with. Um, but that was like an amazing experience from, from end to end, like just like a great, a great uh, collaborator and my writer with Kurt and a great um, editor in, in Mark. Uh, and everybody was like really supportive. And, and um, there was like this really great synthesis that kind of set the standard of what I should expect or where I'd be, what I should be searching for. Um, in every project that I've worked on since then. Um, and uh, I say I kind of I kind of forced my way onto the project because um, as I said, I, I had kind of like just started working for for DC and doing some covers here and there. And what I had done was just uh, for DC, what I had done was some some stuff for um, their kids line. So at the time they had a Johnny DC label and that's where they published all their kids comics. Mm -hmm. And so they were closing out the out the the line. They weren't going to produce them anymore. And what I was working on was their Teen Titans Go book. So I did a couple of covers for them and a short story for them. And, uh, and then that work was going away because they were getting rid of the book. And uh, I remember Mark writing me. He's like, "I'm so sorry, I can't give you anything else." And so um, I told him, "Hey, I'm going to be in New York. Uh, let's meet up. We'll grab lunch, and maybe we could talk about." Like if there's anything else for me and, and I was just a way to, for me to kind of strong arm my way to try and like guilt trip him to giving me another cover or something. And um, when I got there, he was like, yeah, no, sorry. I really, I don't have anything for you. I'm really sorry. And, and I, was, I was really bummed out. So we we're just like kind of talking and kind of shooting the shit and, Oh, sorry. Can I swear? I probably can't. Swear. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, <laughs> totally we're, okay. we're PG, PG 13. Okay. So you're good. <laughs> shooting the stuff. Uh, <laughs> and um, I was looking around his office and just kind of admiring it. And I looked on, he had like a little uh, mood board, like a little idea board. Mm -hmm. And on it, he had like uh, some random page of comics and it was blown up huge. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. What's that? And he's like, Oh, it's this idea I have for this comic. Uh, I don't think they're ever going to go for it. Um, but, and then he explained the book to me. And I was like, wow, that sounds really cool. Do you have anyone assigned to it? And it's like, uh, not really. Again, I don't really think it's going to happen, but I'm just thinking about it. And so like I, I left him and I kind of kept him in the back of my mind. And then I happened to do a convention like a couple of weeks later and it was a convention 
on the West Coast in Portland where Kurt Busiek lives. And he happened to go to the show where I was at. He walked by my table and was looking at my stuff and we kind of started talking. He was like, oh, I like your work. I was like, oh, thank you so much. I love your work. <laughs> uh, and it's like, oh, well, maybe we can do something sometime. It's like, well, actually, uh, DC Comics is putting together this thing and they're looking for a creative team. So what do you say you and me do something? It's like, okay, yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, and so uh, immediately I like went home and I wrote Mark. I was like, hey, I, I saw Kurt and he said he wants to work on a project with me for that uh, thing you were thinking about doing. So just in case it happens, just keep us in mind. And he was like, okay. And then somehow it did. Somehow DC went for it and Mark gave me a call and it happened. And that kind of like uh, in earnest started my, my career. Cause I think you know, I, I only had a couple things that I was doing here and there up until that point, but um, things really kind of stepped up into high gear and it was like a chance for me to kind of prove myself that I could do, you know, big two books, I guess. <laughs> So since since that's been you said that was 2009. So since that's been over a decade ago, do you um, do you feel yourself? Do you feel yourself like that you've grown um, as an artist working on um, books where, you know, there's a like this is the industry standard and things like that. Like you've got to bring your A game every time. Uh, Well, that's the hope. I I hope I have. Um, I keep striving to. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm continually trying to like reassess, uh, you know, ways they work and think and, and, uh, just my process in general. Um, and yeah, I feel like, I don't, I hope it's getting better. I, I feel like it's continually evolving. Um, but, but definitely, uh, it, it keeps things interesting for me. I mean, I had like, you know, on Wednesday comics, it was, you know, I, I was barely working professionally in the industry at the time. So um, I was actually teaching at the time. I taught in a, at an art school at the time. So that was my, my main income. And then this, you know, DC gig was sort of something I was doing in the side. And so because of that, I had, you know, almost endless time to, to work on it. It was like, you know, I had like, you know, three, four weeks to do, you know, a page, you know, and it was, it's a big page. It was like, you know, an oversized 18 by 24 page, but um, that definitely spoiled me because like, obviously that's not the time constraints that a monthly book can work on. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, past that, that was like the most ideal scenario where I had like basically endless time to craft and fine tune a book. And so I was able to make that like as beautiful as I could possibly make it and really finesse it. And then, after that, it's always been, it's been a learning process to kind of figure out a way that I can be economical with my time, but also still deliver quality in my drawing and in my storytelling. And um, I wasn't really challenged in that way until several years later, because like, you know, I did Wednesday comics and then I did a graphic novel for DC that was Black Canary and Satana, but that also, I, I there was no like set schedule for it and so i kind of worked mm-hmm. on it in the background while i was doing like covers and stuff and um it was also you know sort of a dream scenario for that where like i wasn't i didn't necessarily have people like uh you know breathing down my neck to get it done but then i, I eventually i graduated up to doing a monthly book with howard the duck and that was like 
a whole other animal. It was like so <laughs> hard. It was so hard. And, you know, uh, it was just like a constant stress where you're, we are working on this four week rotation. And then mm-hmm. it's sort of right when you finish that, that, that issue and it goes out the door, then it's like, you have a grace period of maybe three days, maybe four days. And then you get the next script and you got to be right on top of it. And like <laughs> kind of even lose that first week of the four weeks of like, just, resetting for the next issue and then digesting the script and storyboarding it. And then you basically have three weeks to actually draw the book. And, uh, and that was so hard. And, and that was like a huge learning process for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from, from there, that's like, that's just like to get in the nitty gritty of, uh, of monthly comics, uh, making comics. Uh, it's a, it's quite, it's a hustle. So like, uh, you know, for me personally, I just had to figure out what worked for me. So like I, I messed around with drawing pages at half scale. I messed around with like doing uh, like in between thumbnails and pencils where I, I, for a little while I was doing thumbnails on or layouts, like kind of like very fleshed out layouts on like just eight and a half by 11 printer paper. Mm-hmm. So something in between like a, a, a storyboard that I would normally I do like little tiny thumbnails in my sketchbook. Uh, something in between that where I have a little bit more detail and then I would just blow that up and just ink directly on top of that. So kind of to skip a stage or blend a couple stages. And, um, and, and nowadays I, I have a, a, a little bit of a, a wider schedule with, with Batman. And, um, and I figured out uh, I have an iPad, which has been revolutionary for me. And, uh, and I, and I can, you know, pencil my, I'll pencil my pages fully digitally. If it's something I don't think people will care about, um, in terms of, uh, like an original page that I could sell, mm-hmm. uh, or just for time, I'll just do it fully digitally. Mm-hmm. And that if it's something that I really care about, I'll pencil it digitally and then print out those pencils and, uh, uh, either ink it myself or I'll send it to an inker to get done. And that's, that's my process right now. It's kind of always changing, but uh, that's where I've been. <laughs> well, we like the nitty gritty. Um, and I'm, I'm just, I was a little bit interested be, for two reasons. Uh, because we've talked to, we've, we've talked to people about um, the, the process before and uh, what it means to be a perfectionist, but also be on the, on the clock. Um, and so I was interested to, to know, you know, do you do you feel like your work is better when you have unlimited time to to tinker or do you feel like it's better when when you are on a schedule? But also uh, one of the things that I the reason why I asked the question was, um, you know, I, I know that there are artists out there who are still drawing the same um, faces and characters of for the last 30 years and they haven't really evolved very much. And I was just I was interested in the way that you see your art to see if, if you felt like you've evolved. I mean, I think that people, like, you know, even if they, they are drawing like uh, the same face, uh, you know, over a large span of time, I think that they're, they're still evolving in their own way because they're, I'm, I'm sure they're figuring out kind of a way to gain the system within the constraints they have. And so like things like that of like you know, uh, drawing, everyone has like a, you know, the same face or like a similar face or a similar body type. That's like kind of a shorthand for the artist mm-hmm. to, to, to economize their time, you know, cause you know, you only have so much time in a day to work and so many, so many days in a month to get your issue out. And so 
they're just trying to find shortcuts wherever they can to just get the, get the work out. Uh, and, and I, I'm definitely aware of that. Like I, I, I do, I, I see that as um, a, a crutch that, that artists can fall on. Um, I, I always tell people like, you know, sometimes people online, artists will come to me and they'll ask me about, uh, oh, how did you choose your style? Or like, I'm really struggling with figuring out what my style should be. And I, I, I don't want to make this comic yet because I want to, I want to like figure out a look of my work first that, that people will be into. And I always tell people that to, to not sweat that because the way that I, the way that I see style is a, a, a sort of a combination of uh, an, an artist's personal taste and their own limitation. So, um, you know, obviously we're, we're drawn, we're sort of a, a product of our influences and, and our, our likes. But uh, I notice a lot of the time when I'm drawing, I will make decisions in my drawing or my inking to um, to hide an inadequacy or, or uh, to kind of gloss over one. And I, I'm, I'm constantly butting up against that. And I, I think as artists, you should keep butting up against that. But, um, you know, those crutches that we have that I, I think are our style are us kind of pushing against uh, an invisible wall. Of, uh, and I think that for us at least for, for it to continue to be interesting to me and fulfilling to me is, is I don't ever want to be satisfied with that. And I, <laughs> and maybe that's, that's my own sickness, but I, uh, uh, I'm never really satisfied with, with a piece of one piece of art that I do. I, I, I can, I can let myself enjoy it. I can let myself be like, I did that. I got through it and I'm proud of this. I'm proud of it. I, I, I definitely, it was hard work and I think it's good or I think it's good enough. Um, but I, I, I don't ever let myself be uh, fully at ease with it or fully comfortable with anything I've done because uh, I think if I were, then I would, I would stagnate. Yeah. Thank you for that, Joy. So, so let's go ahead and kind of shift gears from, you know, talking about, you know, reflecting on your career so far and how you've grown to what you're working on right now, which is Batman 89. And so can you tell us a little bit about maybe the story behind how the comic became a reality, uh, who came up with the idea, what was discussed, anything that was, you know, that kind of helped led to this comic run being created? Um, I mean, part of it is just, uh, you know, the the kind of the longing that little Hit me had when I realized that uh, that Tim Burton wasn't going to be coming back for the third Batman movie. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, you know I remember uh, you know because I was obsessed. I was so obsessed with those movies. I remember um, mm-hmm. you know, ninety four or whatever it being announced that he wasn't coming back, and somebody named Joel Schumacher was going to direct Batman three, and it was going to you know Michael Keaton wasn't going to come back. It was going to be somebody named Batman. And, uh, you know, I love Batman. I love the character. I was still excited, but I was like, this doesn't look the same. It looks so different. Right. Um, and I, you know, I, I still, I, I, I still enjoyed that movie on its own merits. I can still enjoy that movie on its own merits today, but I, 
it, it definitely planted the seed of what, what could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are always these, these rumors about um, that, at least that I, I would hear through the grapevine of like, oh, originally they planned to do Two-Face for, for that Batman Returns. That became Max Shrek. Oh, originally they planned to do Robin and it was going to be Barlin Waynes and, and that fell through, but he still gets paid to this day because they fired him late in the game. And, you know, they just planted little seeds in the back of my mind that I, I would, <laughs> some might say, obsess over uh, when I was a kid. <laughs> and, and I, and I kind of never really let them go. But um, in my, my recent career, DC put out the Batman 66 books, like, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know, 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I have an association with that series as well. I used to also be a fan. And I also got to work on that, you know, briefly. Um, I did an issue for that or a couple issues for that. Um, I was about to say, I, I thought you had been on there at least as a cover artist or something like that. I, I did a two part story. That's what it was. And it, it oh, was nice. Sort of, it was like the intro of, of um, the Harley Quinn character of that universe. Oh, cool. Oh, interesting. That yeah. sounds really cool. <laughs> it was, yeah. It was real, I was really into it. I didn't get to do more. I wanted to like, fully come back around and have her actually become Harley Quinn. Mm-hmm. You got to meet her as Dr. Quinzel mm, okay. um, to design her. And I kind of cast her as a Twiggy. <laughs> it just made sense to me. Um, but yeah, that, so I had a great experience on that. And um, I toyed around with returning to that world uh, for a little while for, for a short while. Um, uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick and I were going to do a Batgirl story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it just never worked out. Just scheduling never worked out. So that, that didn't happen, but it kind of got me, I guess, into this mode of thinking. And when I was working on uh, Howard, I was kind of coming to the end of that run. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, it's just kind of thinking like, well, what do I want to do next? And where can I go? Cause I kind of like, I kind of want to choose where I go next. I don't want to just kind of be dragged around from mm-hmm. project to project. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was talking with my friend, uh, he's a comic artist too. And he was my colorist on a few, a few books, uh, Jordan Gibson, but we, we were talking and I was like, well, wouldn't it be cool if, if, uh, if I could get DC to do a Batman 89 book. Mm-hmm. So, oh man, that'd be so cool. And, and like, well, what would it be? And then we started like, kind of just, we're just hanging out, like playing games or whatever. And, and just kind of, uh, shooting this stuff. And, uh, and we were like, oh, we can have this character show up and this character. And, and I, would, I would cast this character as this actor and cast this character as that actor. And <laughs> it would take place in the mid-90s to the late 90s. And so, like, it had to look like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, oh, it'd be awesome. That'd be really cool. Oh, we could have Robin come back. Oh, maybe we could do Two-Face. And uh, I was like, oh, that'd be such a cool idea. And, uh, and Jordan was like, well, you should do it. You should, you should do it. You should try and make it happen. Why don't you put it together as a pitch? I was like, yeah, you're right. That's a good idea. So I, um, so I reached out to one of the editors I worked on uh, this 66 book with, and I asked him if he'd be interested. And he said, yes. And, and so I put together a initial pitch, which I, it, it was online, uh, you know, six years ago or so. It was just like a, a couple character designs and like a kind of a faux cover. Mm-hmm. And, um, and just like a proof of concept, just like a blurb or two. And uh, they were interested, but, but, you know, went up to the higher ups and they were just like, eh, we don't have a place for this. I don't, I don't think so. Um, and I was bummed out. 
but like it happens like there's it's not the first pitch that i've i've been behind that got turned down so mm-hmm. just that's just kind of how it goes um and um so i kind of filed it away and i was like well maybe someday it'll come back around and it did thankfully uh, <laughs> basically the pandemic hit and i think you know dc was hit pretty hard and then they were kind of looking for a bunch of projects that they could just kind of get loaded up mm-hmm. and uh i remember it was related related to me that uh andy corey and marino they were in like a, a company-wide meeting and they're just talking about well, what can we do what what books should we bring forward and he was like uh, jim lee apparently was like um well i you know the you know the kids seem to like 90s stuff why don't we bring back some stuff from that like do some books kind of set in that time or maybe some nostalgia books. Like, what do we do something with like the old Burton books, mm-hmm. the old Burton movie. And, um, and Andy shot up right away and he's like, Oh, we should do something with the, the Tim Burton, Michael Keaton movie. <laughs> and, uh, and Jim was like, Oh yeah, yeah. That'd be cool. That'd be cool. And, uh, Jeff, Joe put on his drive. I said, Oh yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And, um, so he got the sign off from, from, from Jim Lee. And then immediately he, he wrote me. And I, and so I was, uh, you know, quarantining in my apartment. <laughs> and uh, I got an email from Andy uh, asking, hey, are you still interested in doing a Batman 89 book? And I was like, oh my God, yes. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and that's, that sort of started us on a process of it happening. And it seemed like it might, you know, it took a lot of twists and turns. It, it seemed like it might not happen for a while. There were like, unfortunately, there were like layoffs that DC had somewhere in there. Mm. And uh, we lost Andy, uh, uh, unfortunately, in, in one of those. And uh, we're still in touch, and he still has like his hand in in the books. But um, it was sad to lose him. Um, but uh, yeah, for a little while, uh, I, I wasn't sure if it was going to still happen. It, for a little while, and had a writer attached, and I was like searching for writers that we I I could work with, and you know. Some people didn't think they could do it. Some people didn't think they could make scheduling work. And for a little while, I was going to try my hand at writing it because I had just done a, a Harley Quinn uh, uh, short for a, uh, an anthology that, that DC put together. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I, I had the notion, I was like, let me look up Sam Ham. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I looked him up and I was like, oh my God, he's on Twitter. Uh, and I, I followed him and he followed me back. And I think he, I think he might've messaged me. He was like, I really like your work. I was like, Oh my God, I love your work. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> uh, and that's sort of just where we left it. And then I wrote to my editors and I, and I was like, what do you guys think about Sam Ham? What if we could get Sam to, to write this? He's written for DC before. Obviously he wrote the screenplay for first draft of the second movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, you know, and he's written for DC comics before he did the blind justice book. Like, oh, that's a great idea. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, is he available? I, I don't know if we can even get in touch with them, but if we can get them, that'd be amazing. And I was like, all right, well, I'm going to try. <laughs> so I, I, I kind of pitched it to him. I asked him if he would be interested. He said, I'd like to hear more. I put him in touch with my editors and they pitched him. And, and, uh, and thankfully he, it uh, kind of hit him at the right moment and he, and he seemed interested in the project and, and he came on and we were I'm so, so lucky to have him join us. Cause he's like such a brilliant writer and, um, and, and really like looking back, it couldn't be anyone else, but Sam, um, cause you know, he set forth yeah, it's the his, world, he established it's his story. Right. Like it's, he gets to continue the story that he started. Exactly. Exactly. 
Um, and, and, you know, I, uh, you know, sort of works at all. Um, I, I think it's, it has its imperfections, but I, I love it overall. But um, I know that uh, there were things that he wanted to do uh, for his second movie that, that kind of morphed around to what we eventually got. Um, mm-hmm. So to help um, facilitate Sam coming back and kind of bringing some of those ideas back um, has been like, has been great just as a fan to kind of sit back, even divorced from me getting to draw this, like just being able to sit back and to, to have helped facilitate, you know, him writing his interpretation of the Billy D Williams version of Harvey Dent coming back and turning into two face and mm-hmm. his version of, uh, of Robin, you know, and, and what he had wanted to do with him and getting to see that, you know, flesh out uh, is, Awesome. Just as just as a reader, I just I'm going through the script. I'm like <laughs> like giddy reading through it. You know? <laughs> I was about to say, Joe, like hearing you, how excited you got from this idea of being able to work on a property that you grew up with and that we all grew up with, and being able to make it come to life. I I feel like it it resonated with me because I remember when I first saw the first issue of Batman '89 all those feelings came flooding back. And so it was really cool to see that you've had pretty much that same experience and that I think it really shines through with a lot of people of our age and, and younger who love this world of Batman, being able to see it in the comic world and, and to be able to see this story continue on. I really appreciate that. And I've been loving it. So your enthusiasm yeah. has really shown through um, in the comics here. Secret, con- secret confession. Sean is um, like maybe the, the, World's premier Batman 1989 89 <laughs> fan fanboy. I really like it. <laughs> <laughs> but he's like that's his it's his jam. It's like the thing that he's like waiting, you know, monthly for it to like come out. He's like, oh, this is the Wednesday that the the next issue of Batman eighty nine comes out like oh, that's man. that's him. I, I was oh, I was waiting so long for <laughs> for that issue to come out when that there's that big gap. Yeah, I, oh, I just sorry. Oh no no I no. Got COVID. I, I got COVID. Oh no, and and I totally get it. I just it, but I mean I think it says something because I don't get that excited usually with stories or anything like that. Like I just want that next issue. And I think it just says something about how. I was just like, you know, yearning for that because I just wanted to know what came in the next story and everything like that. And so, no, I, I totally get that. And, and that's, and that's, um, you know, th- things happen, life happens. And, and this has been a kind of crazy two years and everything like that, but I just absolutely love the story. And it was, it was something that was just like, oh man, I got to wait for a while. And so I had to like read all the other issues before reading issues uh, four or five again, because I kind of forgot like what happened with the details oh, and everything sure. like that. But yeah, every, every time a new issue comes out, he starts from the beginning. <laughs> it's like, like next weekend I want to go see, I want to go see the new top gun movie. So I've got to watch the first top gun movie f- to refresh my memory. Still good. I just rewatched it. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> No, like he, like, you know, like when you have a friend that like really likes a band and you're like, yeah, they're good. But like, <laughs> but Sean, 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 1989, Batman 89 is his jam. Yeah. So. Well, we are kindred spirits then. Uh, <laughs> I am constantly evangelizing the Tim Burton Batman. Well, but, but it's not just the film that I'm talking about. It's not just the film that I'm talking about. It's specifically your comic. Like you could go back and look at his Twitter timeline <laughs> because... <laughs> He he really like he really likes it, and I'm and I'm sure yeah. this is a big deal for him to get to to talk to you because of it. 
Oh yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm outing you as a fanboy. Um, I don't think Sean. that was a secret for anybody that okay. knows me. <laughs> no, you're good. So. Yeah, but Sean's Sean's gonna Sean's gonna like get a dog and name him um, Michael <laughs> Keaton. <laughs> yeah, that's a great look. I love it. <laughs> Co-signed. <laughs> okay, so without with all that being said, because we we've mentioned the film and everything, um, doing doing this story and in a world that exists uh, like in a cinematic universe, um, were, were there any challenges or like opportunities in working on a comic that like people what what it should look like has been established um yeah yeah of course uh because um like the 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 those original two movies have such a strong visual identity mm-hmm. um and 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 even beyond a visual identity like it's about um you know the sound it's about the the score you know things that you just it's impossible to replicate in, in comic form. You know, I, I can't, I, hopefully I, I will evoke Danny Elfman when mm-hmm. you're reading it, but I, I can't literally make you hear a Danny Elfman score. While, you know, <laughs> Sean plays it while he reads the book. All the time. <laughs> when I, when I do, he just plays it in the background. By the way, when I do TikTok videos of this comic run, which I think I've done like three or four videos so far, I make sure I find the Danny Elfman Batman song and play it as part of the video. So yeah, Kevin was probably kidding, but no, seriously, I, I do. <laughs> there, are, there are actually, there's definitely moments when I'm, when I'm uh, doing my layouts, like kind of pacing things out um, where I am listening to the scores to kind of help me through it. Mm-hmm. And I, I literally, there's a, a specific track. I just like for the next issue, I, I just kept listening to these two tracks <laughs> just to help me like, figure out the pacing because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to set it up as cinematically as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, and hopefully it, it uh, communicates, but yeah, that, that's definitely, that's a problem. Cause like uh, I said this before, but de- obviously, you know, I'm, I'm not Tim Burton. Uh, what? I'm not, <laughs> I'm not Anton first. I'm not Bo Welch. I'm not Bob Ringwood. Like, and they're all, incredible visionary artists and like they all had such a huge stamp that they put on these movies. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so I know I can't be them, but, but hopefully I can, I can hearken to them and, and kind of uh, homage them and, and even, even build off of what they've established kind of like that's, that's their baseline. And I, I can kind of, uh, you know, hopefully, you know, spread out from there. Um, and, you know, we sort of, we think about it like when, when Sam and I and, and Andy, Corey and Andrew Marino, the, our two editors, when we were having our story sessions uh, in the beginning, kind of figuring out how we wanted it, what we wanted to do and how we wanted it to unfurl. We kept talking about it as, uh, as if the, the movie happened. Okay. The movie exists. We're in an alternate reality where, you know, Tim Burton, that creative team, they never got canned. They got to make their third movie. And what we're doing is that we are adapting it. We're making the comic adaptation of that movie. Mm-hmm. And kind of handle it in that way. Like, you know, you can imagine that, you know, all, all of the, the moments, all the, the panels in our, in our comic are actually shots that we are adapting to comic form. That's, that's the idea. That's a, like the high concept of, of Batman 89 for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, like, I know that 
obviously it's not the same thing. I know that like, you know, drawing a drawing and a comic book is a different visual language than, than a movie where you're dealing with, you know, a camera and actors and editing and, and you're locked to an aspect ratio. Um, And so, so I'm trying to like, find like a sweet spot where I'm trying to evoke a lot of, a lot of that iconography and visual language, but still have it, still have it rest comfortably and, and, and not shy away from, from the benefits of, of, of its own language of being uh, its own medium of Mm -hmm. cartoon, of cartooning of comics. So, um, so there's so there's stuff where I will take liberties, like um, uh, like I, I from the from minute one I wanted to do the wide eyes for Batman, right? Because that's mm. that's such a comic book uh, thing for Batman. That's such a part of his comic book visual identity. So I wanted to kind of in in subtle ways bridge the gap between comic book Batman and movie Batman, mm-hmm. and and you know we explain it away. We we kind of make it make sense within the world, like you know they're. They're techy, you know, white lenses that glow that that extend over, you know, underneath this cowl. Mm. Um, but even still, with that conceit being established, there there's still like cartooning liberties I'll take where like I'll do like the Spider-Man thing where he'll be turning and like his eyes will be cockeyed, you know, it's it's not really possible. <laughs> right. Um so, but it, you know, it's just something that where you're benefiting from the language of of cartooning. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's a way of communicating an idea that you can that, that maybe an actor could communicate in his performance or in a, in a facial expression, but that would be kind of dead if if you try to do it as dryly with a drawing. So so you try to you know trying to emphasize it a little bit. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's a bunch of a bunch of that throughout. But I'm trying to kind of like ride the fence, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'd like to give you a compliment and say that the the artwork is phenomenal. Um and especially the covers. Like every time I look at one of the covers, I I I think you um I don't I don't know if you if you get this comparison at all, but like um some of the some of the covers feel very like Adam Hughesian. Oh, oh my god. Well, that's a um, compliment. I mean, I love I love his work. It's, it's yeah. And, and I, it, like I, that comes, that comes through, it's very photorealistic. And, and I was always, I was curious about like, how, how do you handle, um, you know, like a character's identity, like that, like it's, it's, it's somebody's face. It's, you're not just drawing, you know, your, your preferred comic book face, it's somebody else's face. But the other thing I would, uh, I want, I want you to talk about that. But the other thing I want to say too, is like, as you're talking about invoking Elfman and like all these other, um, you know, amazing visual artists that worked on the films. I, I feel like, like what you've been tasked to do is, is continue this story, but you, it's like, you know, all of these different, all these different people that worked on the films were different components of like a Swiss army knife. And, and, and now you are trying to continue the story and all you have is the corkscrew because all these, you don't have the music and you don't have the set designer and you don't have like all these things, but you're doing an amazing job. Like it really feels, it does feel cinematic. And um, like those little touches that you talk about, like they go a long way to, um, to like you said, like find that, that place in the middle where 
um, where the movie and the comic book like kind of meld together. Awesome. Oh, well, that's, that's great to hear. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, um, you know, obviously I have the benefit um, of there being actors who've played these parts. Right. So, so even though we didn't technically have likeness rights uh, for Michael Keaton um, or Billy D or, or anyone really. Um, but so, so what I would do is I would kind of figure out um, ways to kind of caricature them and, 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 sort of redesign them for the comics. So, mm-hmm. you know, I wanted to evoke Michael Keaton, but um, I'm not like tracing photos of Michael Keaton, you know, like mm-hmm. it's, it's more so supposed to feel like Michael Keaton than, than be actually a drawing of Michael Keaton. Gotcha. Um, and same thing for Billy D. Williams. You know, if you look at any one panel and compare it to a photo of Billy D. Williams, like uh, I, I'm taking a lot of liberties, but I, I'm trying to, kind of whittle down the essence of, of Billy, Billy D and sort of like, and as best as I can, you know, show some of his swagger and sort of like, um, you know, his sort of like a suave, suaveness. His cool <laughs> uh, factor. Yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, have you guys, have you guys seen the meme that's been going around where it talks about like, we should celebrate Billy D Williams more because like he's been around for like 50 years and has been as cool as he is, but all the while his name is William D. Williams. <laughs> no, I've run across it like twice this week on Reddit. And every time I get a truck, I was like, cause he's one of the coolest people in the world. And his parents named him William Williams. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's also his character name is Harvey Harvey Dent. We don't ever say it, but uh, it's that way. <laughs> so Joe, in this run, I've noticed that you've had a lot of fun with all the art, but also there's a lot of Easter eggs in the series. So for example, in the first issue alone, we see pretty much a page dedicated to all the Tim Burton films and characters from the eighties and nineties. There's some, you know, homage to Beetlejuice and to nightmare before Christmas. Um, I saw that you drew in, you know, Dr. Quinzel, into the story as well too. Um, and, and we see her a little bit later, but um, uh, she's in, I think the first issue as well. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that there was probably homage to the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air show. Cause I think I saw some Fresh Prince graffiti in that issue. Is that right? Or am I just kind of looking way too much into that? I mean, it's possible. Sometimes <laughs> I'll just, I'll be watching something and it'll just kind of through osmosis end up on my, you know, on. I was watching Fresh Prince not long ago. It, yeah, it looked like it to me because it's green text with with the pink outline and stroke and all that too. So, um, but I, I wanted to ask you, you know, since you had a lot of fun with this, what's your favorite story inside this run or like a behind the scenes story that we haven't heard so far? That or you know maybe there's there's an Easter egg that you really like that maybe we haven't you know caught yet or anything. Um, hmm. I, I do. I try to put in a lot of Easter eggs. It's just kind of fun for me. Um, mm-hmm. I'm trying to like, you know, I'm trying to make this, make it as rich a reading experience as possible. Like, um, and adding stuff like that in, I, I think it encourages a reader to spend more time on a page. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of times, you know, comics are almost disposable as a reading experience and you can kind of very quickly 
you know, go through what took, you know, you know, you know, months <laughs> to, to create, to craft. Uh-huh. Uh, and, you know, so j- just a reason to get people to maybe slow down a little bit and to, to help them, you know, take their time as they digest it. But it's also just, you know, me as a you know, big nerd and I, <laughs> I just love like, you know, I just love comics and, you know, various, uh, you know, facets of the mythos. And so I'm like, I'll try to like make little, little nods to, you know, my influences as I go. Um, yeah, there's uh, in issue five, I'm not sure if anyone actually caught it, but uh, it's an homage to um, a Norm Brayfogel uh, detective comics cover. Oh. So it's uh, sort of the same, it's like a Batman kind of hunched uh, in shadow. Right. Uh, it's pretty famous. They, they made a statue, I think, of, of that uh, mm-hmm. particular cover that he did. Um, there's other ones I did. Um, uh, Brian Boland's uh, Robin number one. I have Drake uh, in one of his first hero shots. Uh, he's kind of doing the same, uh, you know, kind of Dracula pose. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, definitely, yeah. The first the first issue had was was dripping with Tim Burton references. I, I um, that was mostly to communicate to people who I I thought might be nervous <laughs> that I that I'd be the right person to draw it. It's like, don't worry, I love all of this stuff. So right. I'm aware that Tim Burton is a connection here. So I want to like <laughs> kind of kind of acknowledge that um as overtly as I can. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, there's tons of stuff like that. There uh the the dancers uh that are in the um one of the Prince music videos from the original Batman movie. Um, mm-hmm. Or uh, I think for bat dance, uh, uh, one of the dancers wearing all this in brains too, uh, mm-hmm. like uh, oversized uh, sweater. Like she's wearing it as like an outfit. It's just the sweater. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and so, and she sort of looks like uh, Kim Basinger. Um but I, uh, for the, for the Joker gang and then later the Chief face gang, I have two twins that are also sort yes. of an homage to DD from, from that and beyond. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's so two twins that are, that are wearing matching sweaters and it's all this in brains and all this in brains too. Mm-hmm. Uh, cause there's two of them. Um, but yeah, there's, I, I don't know. There's a ton. There's too many to, to list. <laughs> But um, for now, now, now we'll have to challenge ourselves to go find all of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, and I was going to say the the twins I thought was an homage to um, back again, back to the Batman 1989 uh, movie because of that one scene where, um, you know, I, I forget the whole context and everything, but you have um, Joker who took uh, control of the airwaves and you have the woman like, saying love that joker like that's what they reminded me of and i thought that's probably what they were um supposed to reflect so it was interesting to hear you say that it's actually a different inspiration for that you're referring to candy walker and amanda peeler i think i think so yeah 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 <laughs> yeah uh they they are long dead but um uh i i have drawn them once before actually there's a a short i did with um with chip Zdarsky, uh I think it was like a Harley Quinn annual. It was like three years ago or so, but uh, there's like a scene that's in the Joker's hideout. Uh-huh. And it's just filled with various Joker paraphernalia. And Chip was just like, just like jam pack it with 
literally anything you can think of from the history of these two characters. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and so I have two cardboard cutouts of, of the two girls from the, uh, the love that Joker girls from, from that commercial. Oh, it's awesome. I love that. There's a bunch of stuff too. If you ever, if you can ever track it down, there's like, uh, uh, the Joker surfboard from like the 66 show. There's like, uh, <laughs> there's a framed, uh, newspaper clipping, uh, from like, an old fifties uh, or sixties Batman comic of, uh, uh, and the headline is Batman's greatest boner. Um, oh. It's just a bunch of stuff like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was unsung. It wasn't written. Like Chip was just like, just put everything in there as, that you can. So I'm not sure if anyone even saw it, but, but I, uh, I went through and yeah. tried to have as many in there as I could. That's what I would do if I was ever, like in charge, I'd sneak stuff in all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the final issue of the run comes out on June 15th. What can readers expect from the final issue? And will this be the end of Batman 89? Uh, we shall see. We shall see. Uh, I, I, uh, I love this team and, and uh, I think that we've all really enjoyed working together. So, um, you know, fingers crossed that, that there will be more, but, but I, I, uh, I have no news to break there. <laughs> um, but uh, for this issue, um, I, I'm really excited about it. I, I just, again, as a, as a fan, when I was reading the script, um, I uh, just giddy kind of, you know, seeing the arcs of these characters close and, you know, some doors, you know, possibly opening for, 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 you know, new, stories are new opportunities for characters. Um, I, I think that is all kind of said in this. And uh, for, for me, it, it was, um, I, I had, a, 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 there was a bit of a back and forth. I, I remember um, Sam, Sam had a lot of story that he uh, was trying to condense into this issue. So like, Mm-hmm. You know, you have the, his, you know, the initial arc that we've talked about, and then there's like the writing that you have to actually sit down and write out each issue. And he kept kind of like joking, not joking about wanting to have more issues. <laughs> and uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, Andrew, our editor, would just kind of kind of smile and nod and just kind of ignore that. And, and, uh, I, I think because he just he 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 wanted some he wanted more time to 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 really s- sit and expand things out, but um, uh, it, you know we're we're confined to twenty pages, so so um, there's a little bit of a back and forth and of like a, a consolidating to make the story work within that. But I think we really nailed it actually. So. Um, I, I got the script from Sam for this issue and then we, and then we had a little bit of a, a, a kind of a story breaking back and forth uh, between us and our editor and where I would be like sending in layouts and to Sam kind of back and forth to kind of figure out how we would, how we might kind of, you know, maybe we could rearrange this and expand on this and tighten this down and, and, and make this, what was it, you know, written in the script is like a small action open. Maybe we can expand this out. So it's a more of a, 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 a cinematic kind of crescendo, mm-hmm. um, you know, cause Sam is, is, 
you know, Sam's writing and he's getting the story beats and he's very concerned about the character beats. And I think he absolutely nailed it. And I am trying to make it work, um, you know, as this like theoretical cinematic adaptations. And so, so I'm trying to like have it, you know, have like a big finale and have it feel like a big finale of a, of a movie in my head. <laughs> I, I know it's a comic. I know it's a comic. Um, uh, but I, I do, I think we did. I, I, uh, I'm, I think the proudest of any one issue uh, I am of this, this last issue. And I, I, I hope people like it. I, I, I feel really great about it. Um, I, uh, it's still sort of in process actually. So I, I, I haven't gotten a letter in turn yet and I haven't seen Leo's colors. And I, you know, that Leo, uh, Leonardo Ito, who's the colorist on the book, mm-hmm. um, a shout out to him. He's just done just incredible work throughout and Clayton Klaus, who is the, the letterer also just, you know, letterers are often unsung heroes of comics and, and um, just, you know, amazing work and, and colors, mm-hmm. letterers and colorists. They often, I think are, are unseen, but um, mm-hmm. they're, they're just incredible. Just incredible. Um, yeah. You don't realize how important lettering is until you read something that has really bad lettering. And then you're like, Oh, Yes, right, exactly. Yeah, it really it help. It really it, it it helps with the pacing. It's like sound mixing for comics, mm-hmm. you know? right? Um, and uh, and and likewise, uh, you know, your colorist is sort of like your cinematographer. You know, um, it, it, he really is really setting the mood and 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 storytelling. Like his colors are helping to to tell the story of the book. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm a bit giddy. Uh, the the fanboy me is a bit giddy to to get those colors back from him, and, and that's been that's been uh, uh, my joy every issue is, is getting those back. It's like you know, not you you're not always like absolutely a hundred percent simpatico with everyone you work with, like mm-hmm. uh, in a scenario that it's like an assembly line where it's like you do this, you do this, you do this. But I I really feel so like like a, like similar to my work with Wednesday comics where I was with Mark and, and Kurt and it, it felt like this really easy synthesis. Um, it, it fully feels like that with, with this group and like, like we're all, we're like a well-oiled machine. I feel like, and, and I uh, like, we all kind of get what the other person is putting down mm-hmm. and, um, and it makes it so joyous to, to see each issue come together because it's not always joyous for me. Like, like, even though it's like, you know, I, every now and again, I have to step back and be like, Oh, I love this. This is like a dream project for me. I can't believe I'm doing this. Um, you know, still sometimes I'm drawing a pace and like, God, this, this freaking pace is killing me. It's killing me. It's so much work. Oh my God. And, um, and so, you know, I, I get caught up in the minutia of this just being a job and it being hard and and once it leaves my hands, I can enjoy it again. Mm-hmm. Well, it comes back like your your hard work, your great pencil and ink work comes back with those colors and looks amazing, right? Like so, it's it's, it's yeah. I, I can almost I can sit outside myself and just experience it. Yeah, as a comics reader, you know, and and same thing when I get scripts from Sam, it's like I can just experience it as a reader and just enjoy it that way. In between is there's the hard work of me having to make a thing, but then on, on the bookends I get to actually have fun with it. Very cool. 
Yeah, it's awesome. Well, we have uh, one more question for you, and we post a Instagram story asking people what uh, questions they might have for you. And we had one question that we thought was really interesting they want to share. And this comes from uh, Liz. Her uh, username is at Little Lasagna from Instagram. And she wanted to ask you who or what is the most challenging piece for you to draw? Hmm. the most challenging piece for me to draw. Interesting. I well, actually, I probably the the uh, uh, the space, the spaces of it. The, so that that comes to me probably the least quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 other stuff that the you know the you know drawing any one character. There's a lot of effort and craft that goes into that, mm-hmm. uh, but it's easier for me. That's that's kind of. That's like, um, I, I don't have to think as hard for that. Um, but every time I have to draw Gotham, I have to really think about it mm-hmm. <laughs> and really design it. And like, I, you know, I'm going back to my little, my vision board and, and looking at all of the Anton first designs and, and all the Bo Welch designs and, and kind of extrapolating from that. And then also looking at, you know, my own little mood board for, you know, for Burnside and, and, kind of the architecture that we're pulling on from for that. And, and that's, that's probably the hardest part for me is, is trying to make that work as best I can. Cause yeah, that's not as easy. And, for me. and, and because like throughout history, I think of the comics and, and the movies, Gotham is an important character to the, to the story. And I would be interested to trace, like trace Batman back to the beginning and see if, see if there are any artists who didn't draw um, like wide shots of Gotham as their crutch. Like this is, this is how I'm going to compartmentalize, you know, getting the job done is I'm going to, I'm going to focus on these angles and, and this shot here so that I don't have to draw the, the cityscapes. Oh, more than you think, more than you yeah. think, all the time. <laughs> uh, I think an absolute master of it. Uh, and it stopped us besmirch uh, him. It's actually, I think uh, it's a, uh, acknowledgement of like his genius is Alex Toth. If you look at a, a bunch of like Alex Toth Batman pages, a lot of it is like a lot of the genius of his Batman pages and just his comics in general is deciding what not to draw and what what to what to show and what to crop out. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is like for economy of time. It's, it's just just working smartly. But you would never notice it because it's like the most beautiful drawings and the most beautifully designed pages you've ever seen. But um, yeah, I remember going through a lot of his comics and being like, he's just avoiding drawing a background here. But but it it, <laughs> it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because you're you know you're within the language of comics in it. Mm-hmm. And um, you know you still you still want to have those moments. Like mm-hmm. I, I think you know. A, a lot of times American comics get kind of weighted down in that, that nitty gritty. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of Japanese comics, a lot of manga have that really succinctly figured out where like, you know, you'll have one money shot, basically one like a page where like you see like an epic uh, environment and it completely sets the scene of uh, the, of, you know, the, the next couple pages, you know, where you are, you know, um, 
the space you're in, and they totally sell it in that first sold it in that first page, that first first flash, and the next several pages are just you know reaction shots with no background, and it's like that's absolutely fine. There's there's nothing wrong with that. You're not really avoiding work. You're just working more intelligently. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, living in the world that we live in, where a lot of artists kind of like post their uh, work in progress on social media and whatnot. I can remember several years ago um, when uh, Greg Capullo and Scott Snyder were wrapping up their run on, on Batman. It was, I want to say it was during the end game storyline um, where he was, he had Greg Capullo had posted some artwork of like this big splash, pe- splash page that he was doing that featured a parade and like the intensive labor that went into like drawing the balloons and drawing the the cityscape and the trees and everything for this like parade. And it was, it was amazing, but you can't do that every panel and, right. and, and hope to make meet deadlines. So. And, and even within that, like there's, there's been uh, panels before, like sometimes you just can't avoid it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there was a, a comics page I drew once where it was um, somebody had died and there was a funeral and it was like, uh, it was a Captain America story. And within this narrative, Captain America was dead. I think it was like in the ultimate universe. And, uh, and so it was like a double page spread. First of all, it's double page spread. So mm-hmm. you have to draw panels over two pages. And it's a, it was described as a, a, a huge funeral procession in the Washington mall with, with like the Washington monument in the background. And there's like hundreds and hundreds of people. And I'm like, Oh, okay. I have to I have to draw that now, and like, and you just do it. But like, even within that that uh, that construct, you still figure out ways mm-hmm. to go easy on yourself. Like, yeah, you're gonna frame some things in the foreground, so you have to draw literally 300 people. You know, the, the, you'll have you know foreground elements, middle ground elements, and background elements, and like all of that stuff tells a story. And it also, if you can do it right makes a more engaging scene makes it in a more engaging you know frame to look at than if you were to literally see like a where's waldo you know of everyone equally distant away you know three four hundred people you know you know standing on the, the watching the mall mm-hmm. i can imagine that crowds are especially hard they're never easy you know yeah <laughs> so, well i mean i, I think back to like in uh when the two towers movie came out and Peter Jackson and Weta, they they created like the computer software that used AI to animate what all the different people in the army were doing, um, so they wouldn't have to a hire extras or b like animate each individual one. And it was a game changer for that type of uh, for that type of cinema. And what what you're talking about with like having to draw a crowd probably hasn't changed like a lot over the last fifty years. There's just like there's only there's only a handful of like tried and true ways to do it, but everybody has their, everybody has their little thing that they, they try to put their spin on it so that it kind of alleviates the, um, you know, the complexity of the task. Totally. Yeah. I think and no matter where you're at, I think you're always looking for those shortcuts. Like <laughs> that makes me think of, uh, uh, Phantom Menace. Like there's the, the big, like the pod racing scene. And I know in the crowds, like they make a bunch of little people. That's like, it's like little Q-tips, like, Mm-hmm. miniature of the stands and then it's like several q-tips all uh, spray painted different colors and that's your crowd mm-hmm. uh, and yeah that's fine nobody thinks twice about it you, you or, never know or when they do it i remember watching um like the behind the scenes on how they shot like the water boy and they have like you know 40 or 50 people 
that they put in the crowd and they're cheering and then they move them over <laughs> and they like rearrange them and then, then they move them again and they just like they create the crowd by just rearranging everybody. Nice. And nobody's nobody's created a a, a brush stroke for people in in Photoshop to where you, you swipe and you've got a guy or a shadow or yes. silhouette or whatever. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you know technology is always evolving. But before we let you go, we always like to play a game with our guests, and you've been a, a, a great guest so far. But we want to get in on a little bit of fun. Uh, and I kind of alluded to this before we got started. In honor of Batman '89, we are going to play a little bit of Price Is Right '89. Uh, and talk about how much things cost um, uh, back then, because uh, if you take a walk outside uh, your door now, things are things have gotten pretty expensive. So uh, I'm in Texas, just as an ex- example, um, a gallon of gas today costs four dollars and, and twenty nine cents. So similar, similar here. Yeah. yeah so it's um, and I'm going to I'm going to start there. Okay, I'm going to start there, and I'm going to ask you guys to guess. You're going to be playing against Sean. Closest without going over takes it. We'll play an odd number so that we can get a real winner. Okay? Gallon of gas in 1989? Gallon of gas in 1989. Joe, you get to go. And Sean, don't, be, don't do Joe dirty and be $1. Okay? 89 cents. <laughs> Joe says 89 cents. What do you think, Sean? I'm going to say $2.33. Joe takes round one because it's 97 cents. 97 cents. And you know what? When I was when I was uh, learning to drive in 1998, I guess we had gone through a similar economic time where things were pretty good because I can remember when I first learned how to drive that it was only about 90 cents to a dollar for a gallon of gasoline. So it, it rises and falls. Um, okay, so here's some some technology that was coming, like new technology in 1989. Let's see if you can you can get this right. How much do you think, Sean? I'll let you go first on this one. How much do you think a Logitech mouse went for? Logitech mouse. I'm gonna say twenty nine dollars. All right, Joe. What's your guess? Um, in 1989, uh, twelve dollars. Would you believe that in 1989, a Logitech mouse for your for your home computer cost eighty nine ninety nine? Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, I believe that. It's not uh, worth they, it. They they weren't, but I mean, during that time, they weren't as commercialized as they are now. Yeah, you know, like I got it, this it was one, more of a. They were, uh, were steam powered then. That's what <laughs> I got this one from Five Below for five bucks. So okay. Um, here we go. How about Joe? You get first dibs on this one. Uh, Sean, you took that one, even though you were still pretty far away. You were. I was the closest. That's the name of the okay. game. Here's another Here's one. Here's the closest. <laughs> My first Sony CD player. Can we insert a gif of Bruce Wayne turntabling a CD? <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is um, the Sony compact disc player for kids. Plays five inch CDs or three or, or CD three software features auto music sensor, music search, three inch speaker, microphone, and line out jack. How much is that going to run you, Joe? Uh, Eighty nine ninety nine. 
Um, this is in 1989. I'm going to say a little bit higher. I'm going to say 129. The actual answer is 189.10. So a CD player cost nearly $200 back then. Can you, can you like, my son is 13 now and is always asking me to buy him, buy him a PlayStation 5. Costs $500. And well, it depends on which one you get. But here's the deal. Like in 1989, knowing, knowing, okay, I'll give you, I'll give you a dollar amount. In 1989, the average income per year was $27,000. Could you imagine uh, like buying a two hundred dollar CD player for your for your kid? Like that just seems that is, crazy. To that me. is rough. All right, uh, here wow. we go. <laughs> here we go. In a nineteen eighty nine two inch LCD TV, this innovative take along color TV from Casio has high resolution color liquid crystal display and a high quality matrix system for picture sharpness. Includes VHF and UHF telescoping antenna. Sean, it's your it's your play. I had one of these, I think, or something similar to it. Um, I'm going to say that's around four oh nine ninety nine. <laughs> and Joe, uh, we'll do three eighty nine ninety nine. Oh bummer! Unfortunately, you guys both overbid. Oh, was the it actual over- price is two forty nine ninety nine. So, so that was a good deal. Like if you could get that for two forty nine, you're like, I'd expect to pay three hundred eighty nine dollars for this. Right. This is the this is you know the final round of, of uh, prices. Right, they always give away a car. Okay. Oh sweet, sick. Here you go. So like new <laughs> new to the market, the Ford Probe which was a like a sporty coupe in the late 80s early 90s the ford probe has come out how much does the would the ford probe would have run you in 1989 hmm. let's say 49,000 okay Sean I'm going to go less and say 35,000 gentlemen you could have gotten a ford probe in 1989 for $12,695. Oh, nice. That's okay. I probably wouldn't have been able to fit in it anyway, so. <laughs> we don't get the car is what you're saying? No, you do not win. You both overbid, and you don't even get to hug one of the, um, like, one of the, the prices Right ladies on the way out. Um, actually, a, a BMW 325 only cost 21000 then. So this is why oh, people always talk about wanting to return to Reaganomics, because apparently it was pretty good then. Yeah, but the uh, you gotta look at you know the, everything in, in total. That like they, like what you were saying, twenty seven thousand dollars for. I can tell you also that the interest rate was ten and a half percent. Like the Federal Reserve interest rate was ten and a half percent. Yeah, so because I remember when my parents take. got their house, they were telling me that their um, their mortgage loan was like something around that, like twelve percent or whatever. I remember when we were in our house, like I think four percent was what we were offered, and and we were just like, oh man, that's a that's a great deal. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, before we let you go, can you um, tell us where, tell our listeners where they can find you and your work online? Sure, sure. Um, I am on Twitter. Um, it's uh, Joe underscore uh, Quinones, Q-U-I-N-O-N-E-S. Um, 
And on Instagram, uh, Quinn Ones, K W I N O N E S. I have that because uh, I had a substitute teacher who pronounced my name that way, and I, <laughs> I, just, I just latched onto it. I don't know. I always think about it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's Instagram and Twitter. And then I also, uh, you can find me at joecronus.com. And those are, those are my internet places. Well, thank you again for joining us tonight. Thank you for sharing uh, all of the, all that you've shared, your process and all the insight and everything. It's been amazing. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me guys. That's going to wrap up another episode of The Caption Life. We hope that you enjoyed listening. Don't forget to smash that subscribe button on whatever major podcast platform you listen to. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Caption Life. And if you like what we're doing, give us a shout out, tag us in your post. For more info about us and all of our previous episodes, please visit thecaptionlife.com. Until next time, you want to get nuts? Let's get nuts. (laughs) 